You did what? Did you? Hey, if you have your Bibles, open up to Judges, chapter 8. We're going to continue to take a look at uh, our buddy Gideon. As we look at Gideon, remember that um, he began as a coward, right? We saw Gideon first in Judges chapter 6, and he was hiding from the Midianites. He's afraid. He's struggling with uh, all the stuff that's been going on. The Midianites, remember, about every year at harvest, fair time. They'd show up and uh, they'd come through, knock down everybody's tent, steal all their harvest, burn it, take it, whatever, just to make sure that the children of Israel didn't have anything. And he remember the children of Israel are in this place, in the first place, because they didn't obey God. God gave them the land. Joshua went in and wiped out all the armies. All they had to do was go in and walk with the Lord. But instead, we see a pattern that they develop. During times of rest... It leads them, when things are good, to a time of rebellion. And the time of rebellion leads them to a time of retribution. In other words, God brings judgment, and that judgment for their disobedience, and they go through times of bondage. Bondage literally into the sin, whatever the sin is that they're dealing with. That retribution leads them to repentance. They come to a place and they call out to God, help. And God sends someone to restore the judge we saw that the the word judge remember in the hebrews the same word for hero god sends a hero who goes delivers them from the hand of those who have been keeping them uh, uh, in bondage and then at that moment they enter into a time of rest and then they go back into rebellion again for 400 years that cycle repeats For 400 years, they do the same thing over and over and over again. And we've been talking about the reality that in our life, we all have a a choice. We can be like the heroes in the book of Judges. We can be like the guys. Because the only thing that, that separates us from them is that submission to God and saying, I'll do whatever you you want me to do. They had the Holy Spirit come upon them. We as believers have the Holy Spirit within us, right? Everything that they had to be a hero, you have. Everything that they had to overcome, you and I have. We have that opportunity. But in the life of Gideon, we see, um, I don't know, kind of like a pattern that a lot of times happens in the lives of believers. Maybe we start in a lowly place. Gideon was a coward. He was afraid. But then God comes to him and, and sees in Gideon what Gideon can be, not what Gideon is. Aren't we thankful that's the way God looks at us? He doesn't look at us and see our failures. He doesn't see all the things we messed up. He looks at us and says, like he said to Gideon, O mighty man of valor. In fact, through that calling of God, if you will, on Gideon's life, the name Gideon came to mean mighty warrior. So Gideon, by the Lord, he says, you're a mighty man of valor, even though he's afraid. And we saw the journey of faith for Gideon, right? Gideon's afraid. He's not really sure God's talking to him. He's afraid to step out in faith. If we're honest, every one of us has been there, right? Is God talking to me? Is this God's voice? Is God's, this God's direction? So we go through that. And, and just like him, we, he asked God a series of four different questions. And God, this is important, never loses his patience with him. The Bible says God's long-suffering. Who loses patience with people? We do. People do. But God doesn't lose patience with them. 
Even when he, he lays out that uh, fleece, right? And God does what he asks, and then he wants to lay it out again and have the reverse done. God's not upset. He just does it for him. And when Gideon's ready, then we see God take him from a, a, a life, maybe a coward, afraid, and he makes him a conqueror. We saw in chapter 7 that God took him from 32,000 guys in his army, right? And he said, now Gideon, tell everybody who's afraid to go home. So everybody who's afraid went home. 22,000 left. 10,000 against 135,000. That seems like reasonable odds, right? 14 to 1, okay. God should have been satisfied, but we know he wasn't, right? God said, you still have too many. Somebody's going to think that it's because the army's good that you won. And I want them to make sure that they know that I'm delivering them. So he whittled them down to 300 men. Now, those 300 men, he must have given some kind of special weapon, right? A, a special sword that wouldn't break or, or, you know, a ray gun. I don't know, shoot lightning from their fingertips, something to give them the advantage. It's 450 to 1 now. It's pretty amazing odds. You remember the weapons that God gave him? He gave him a trumpet, a pot, and a torch. Now, last I checked, we talked about last week, those are the things you need for a party, not a war. A trumpet, a torch, and a pot. But they conquered 135,000 men with that. Wiped them out. How did they do it? They walked into the midst. They kind of surrounded the camp. And Gideon said, when you hear me blow the trumpet, everybody blow the trumpet, break the pot, and let the light out, and shout the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So they circled it. And when Gideon gave the, the, the signal, they all blew their trumpets. And then they busted their pots and they held up the torch. And that's all they did. Don't lose sight of that. They didn't run around and beat people over the head with the torch. They just stood there. And God sent confusion among 135,000 in the army. And they began to kill each other. And then they freak out and panic so much that they turn around and ran. And Gideon gathers together all the people who had come to him, the 32,000. He gathers them. The 300 is in front chasing him. And he sent the call for all those other guys. Come on, let's go get them. And they all begin to go. And that's where we find him in chapter 8. He's, he's in the hunt. He's, he's been chasing them. And he's gonna, we're going to see him uh, finish that, that chase today. But remember, I told you this is a journey in Gideon's life. He goes from courage to conqueror to compromise. And the end is not so good as the middle. And we have to watch out for the same thing. It's been said that we have to be even more vigilant after victory than in the defeat. We have to stay vigilant all the time. The Bible says it like this. Let him who thinks he stand do what? Take heed so he doesn't fall. Be aware. Keep your eyes open. So let's take a look. We pick him up in chapter 8. Chapter 8. Hey, <clears throat> Susie, if I asked you to do something, would you do it? I would ask Kathy, but she's not in here right now. Uh, my glasses. I can't see nothing in a Bible like this. Yeah, they're on top. <clears throat> Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. Now listen, don't lose sight of what just happened. When we take a look at it, we need to understand Gideon is from the tribe of Manasseh. 
Ephraim and Manasseh, does anybody know? Ephraim and Manasseh are brothers. They're brother tribes. They're, they're part of, obviously they're all part of the same family. But Ephraim and Manasseh were brothers. And Ephraim, Joshua was from Ephraim. And Ephraim for the last couple hundred years been pretty popular. You know, if they're going to go to war, somebody calls Ephraim. Well, now Gideon has this great victory over the Midianites. And Ephraim comes to him and all that they can see is you didn't invite us. They don't pay any mention of the victory. They don't pay any mention of glorying in, in God's deliverance. All they care about is how it affected us. Look what they said in the first verse. Why have you done this to us? What did they do to them? By not calling us. We don't get to share in what? The glory, man. They don't, they don't share in the glory. Sometimes there are times in ministry, you're doing something for the Lord, and somebody's going to come along, and all they're going to be able to do is complain about how you did it or why you did it, and they can't see the victory or the fruit that God's brought. But Gideon helps us understand how to apply very biblical concepts. Because in the Proverbs, the Bible says, a soft answer turns away wrath. So Gideon doesn't get mad. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't snap at them or, or you know, send his army after those guys. He gives them a, a soft answer. His answer is in verse 2. So he said to them, what have I now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? He says, listen, isn't the leftovers of Ephraim greater than the best of Manasseh? He brings a, a, a little word of flattery for all the things that they had done. And then he points to the victory that they just had, which was at the close of chapter 7. For he says in verse 3, God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. Oreb means raven and Zeb is the wolf. They, they caught the raven and the wolf. These were like the princes, the young princes, the young commanders of the armies. And they, so God did give them, did use them in the, in the victory. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? And the Bible says, so their anger subsided when he said that. It's fulfillment of what the scripture teaches us. And that is whether being right doesn't matter. Do you understand that? Especially when we're dealing with brethren. These are brethren, right? Brothers. When we're dealing with family, being right doesn't matter. It's not important. What's important, the, the Lord lays out for us to be at peace. And as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Find a way to make peace. It's not a matter of who's right and who's wrong. Now, does that mean if someone's in sin, you don't confront them? No, that's not necessarily what he's talking about. But here, how did Gideon approach it? If he had called him on the carpet, told him what a sinner and loser he was, what would they be doing next? Well, I got my army and he's got his. And we're trying to fight the, the enemy right now. But now that, that's been turned because a brother is being selfish. That's all being turned. And now here we are with our armies talking to each other. If we don't take care of that right, what are we going to have? A civil war. That's how splits in the church happen, man. So what does the Bible say to do? The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. 
So Gideon gives him a soft answer. Hey, man, I'm not, we're not trying to exalt ourselves over you guys. You guys are great. Look at the victory that God gave you. And he, and he turned their eyes from themselves or from all that stuff to what God had used them to do. And it turned away the wrath. But later on, Ephraim needs to be confronted for their pride. That happens in chapter 12. Because another judge comes into power. His name is Jephthah. And Ephraim is still struggling with the same issues. So it's got to be dealt with, but it's got to be dealt with how? God's timing. This wasn't God's timing. The enemy's out there. We need to focus on the enemy, not on fighting each other. So when we come together, we're looking for a way to make peace, a way that we can have peace, and that's what God, that's how the Lord guided him. Ephraim, though, they're struggling with pride, and they're focused on themselves, and they're doing all kinds of of crazy things. I want you to consider this. Ronald Reagan said this. There's no limit to what a man can do if he doesn't care who gets the credit. At this point, Gideon don't care. Right? Hey, Ephraim, if you want the billboard that says you're the greatest, right on. You can have it. I don't care. I got an enemy to go fight. That was his attitude, and that's a great attitude for us to have. Well, then it goes on. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted, but still in pursuit. Now, don't lose sight. 300 men are in front. Behind the 300 are coming the rest of the 32,000. They're branching off and picking off. This is not just the 300 getting the victory here. He called the others to battle. We saw toward the end of chapter 7. So here they go. They're out into battle. They're running after the men. They cross the Jordan River. Now, when you cross the Jordan River, there are two and a half tribes in control on the other side of the Jordan, right? Right? Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. And Gideon comes from where? Manasseh. So he has family or brethren on the other side of the Jordan. As he's chasing these guys, as they're running down toward the Dead Sea, he crosses the Jordan in pursuit of them, and he's still in Israel, and there's still the two and a half tribes down there. So he comes to a place in that land, it says, and he said to the men of Sukkoth, Sukkoth, uh, Sukkoth, it means tabernacle or tent. Tent, the place of the tent. If you remember... When Moses brought the children of Israel in from Egypt, he took a stop for them in Sukkot, where they would learn that it's not about the things we possess, that the, the, the things that are on this earth, the whole point behind living in tents, the things of this earth will never satisfy. Your home's not here. Your home's somewhere else. That's what Sukkot meant when they came through the first time. But now, in Sukkot, they're, they're, they really care more about the stuff they have. And they're a little bit afraid to help out Gideon because he's going against the powers that be right then. The Midianites. He's at war with the Midianites. So he comes into Sukkot and he says, Please, give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the leaders of Sukkot said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zamuna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? Keep in mind, this is not, he's not talking to Canaanites. He's talking to Israelites. Specifically, Sukkot is in Gad. 
So he comes to some brethren, some Jewish people, to whom he has just delivered and conquered the armies who have been keeping them in bondage. And he asks them for bread because they're tired. And they say, no, I'm not going to help you because the kings aren't in your hand right now. And if you don't win this battle, them kings are going to come back, take what we have. So, no, we won't help. So he comes looking for bread to help in the victory, and they give none. They won't give him any help. So, yeah. So Gideon said, for this reason, when the Lord has delivered Zeban Zamuni into my hand, I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Since you won't help me, when I get these guys, I'm going to come back, and you're going to get whipped. Then he goes, then he went from there to Peniel. And he spoke to those in the same way. And the men of Peniel answered him like the men of Sukkot had answered him. And he, and he also spoke to the men of Peniel said, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Every city had a strong tower. You guys remember in the Psalms, it, it talks about the Lord being our strong tower. So when things get hard, we flee to the strong tower. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, that picture of the strong tower. In the cities in those days, they had a strong tower. The the strong tower literally is the fortress. So when an enemy would come, rather than trying to defend their homes, just think like medieval, like a castle. They'd all flee back into the strong tower, the fortress. And so he says in Peniel, he says, since you guys won't help me, I'm going to tear down that fortress. I'm going to tear down the fortress that you, that's where their hope is right now. You know, we're okay. You can't do nothing to us. And it seems like the men of Peniel were supporters of the kings of Midian. You remember Peniel? There was this young guy, you know, he always had a hard time following God. His name was Jacob. Jacob. Jacob, one day, he's running from his brother. His brother wants to kill him, and he comes to a place. And when he comes to that place, he lays down. He has no pillow, so he uses a rock for a pillow. He lays his head on this rock, and he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, he sees a vision of a ladder going up into heaven. And the angels of God ascending and descending. Remember the story? Jesus tells us what that vision means, by the way. And John, somewhere around John chapter 8 I want to say but he says to him or no it's earlier than that's when he meets uh, Nathaniel and Jesus says to him that he's the ladder that the angels ascend and descend he's the way he's the bridge that gaps heaven and earth when Jacob woke up he said I'm going to call this place Peniel for God was in this place and I knew it not Peniel comes to mean the face of God, that he saw a vision of the face of God. Now, in the place called the face of God, they won't help God's people. They turn their back on God's people, and instead they become a harbor for the enemy. These are Israelites, man. They won't help themselves. You ever known there are people who won't help themselves out? I mean, you bend over backwards trying to help some people. We, we try to help a lot of people here at the church. You bend over backwards to help people. Some people will not just help themselves up. 
bend over backwards to try to help, but they don't want the help. Well, here, that's Peniel. They don't care. They're satisfied in their bondage. They want to stay in the bondage, so they won't help him. So now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor. Now Karkor is at Wadi Sirhan. It's just uh, near the Dead Sea. So they fled all the way down to the Dead Sea, and he's been following them. And their armies with them, about 15,000. Now remember how many they had at the beginning? 135,000. How many do they have now? 15. Now the 300 didn't do that. God did that. Just like that, he whittles them down. They killed one another. They fought with one another as they fled from the Lord. And all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road to those who dwell in tents on the east of Nobah in Jogbeha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. So they fled all this way down south, down into the Dead Sea area. And now they think, they think okay, we're okay. We run far enough. We're going to be okay. We can regroup here. And that's when Gideon hit them. Gideon went in when they felt secure. When they felt like everything is okay. Folks, there's an important lesson for, the, for us in that. And here's that important lesson. These two kings of Midian were still in enemy territory, weren't they? And in enemy territory, they began to feel secure. We're okay here. They felt like they had it under control. You and I are in enemy territory. If we start to feel comfortable here, we're going to find out that it's not okay. If we, when we start thinking that something on this earth is going to satisfy us, when that bigger house or that better job, or if I had the, the right woman in my life, or if I had the right man in my life, if we start thinking that there's something on this earth that's going to satisfy, we're not learning the lesson of Sukkot, that nothing here satisfies. This place is not my home. We live in tents here. But one day, God's going to call us home. And when he does, we move into a permanent dwelling. The scriptures tell us in the book of Hebrews that Abraham looked forward to a city whose builder and maker was God. And he said, that city has foundations. Remember, Abraham lived in a tent, right? He was always having to pick it up and set it up and move it. And he longed for a place where he could put down roots. But he knew it wasn't here. He knew... That comes when I see God face to face. Then I get to put down roots. I don't have to pick up my tent anymore. It's all done. The enemy here felt secure. And when they felt secure, Gideon went in and he took it. We have to realize we're in enemy territory. The king of all the world, his name is Jesus Christ. But he's not sitting on a throne right now, right? There's a usurper on the throne. The Bible says Satan is the prince and the power of the air. That he's in control right now. And until Revelation chapter 6, he stays that way. Until Jesus begins to open up the seven seals that hold the title deed to the planet earth and to lay claim to his throne. Until that time, we are in enemy territory and we need to realize we should never get to the place where we feel secure or this place satisfies us. It's not our home. There's a better land a-coming, and we need to continue to look forward to that. So Ziba and Zalmunna fled, and Gideon pursued him. 
And he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. That word for routed means he confused and terrified them. They were so obliterated by the things that Gideon and the army did as they had the blessing of God upon them that they were blown away by what God did. So Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Harris. So Gideon's on his way back. And he caught a young man of the men of Sukkot, and he interrogated him, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkot, its elders, 77 men. Now it's payback time. So Gideon says, okay, 77 leaders of Sukkot. Then he came to the men of Sukkot, and he said, here is Ziba and Zalmunna. Remember the two guys they wouldn't help him for, because you don't have the kings yet. Who are with whom or about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your weary men? So he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, listen to this phrase, and with them he taught the men of Sukkot. They, they were learning something. Yeah. They went. They went, I've been to that school a couple of times. He taught them. Now, because they had ridiculed him publicly, they were beaten publicly. Because if that ridicule had been private, it would have been different. Now, I'm not saying they wouldn't have got beat. But here is Gideon, God's judge, his hero, to deliver the nation. And when he asked them for help publicly, the elders publicly ridiculed him and wouldn't help. So publicly, he lined them up. And he beat them. He taught the men of Sukkot. And then in verse 17, then he tore down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the city. So he went in like he said he was going to do and he tore down that fortress. And then he killed the men that were in the city there. The men that were part of the city. Remember, those guys had given support to the kings of Midian. So that was Israelites who were helping the enemy. And so... They were destroyed, and, and Gideon uh, killed the men there. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they that you killed at Tabor? So now Gideon's going to give us a little insight into his own history. He asked those two kings, in a, a couple of years ago, when you guys came in and you took over Tabor, and you slaughtered the men there, what kind of men were they? What were they like, those guys that you killed? So, they answered and said, well, they're like you are. So were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. They flattered the king. They're trying to say, oh, they were, they were great guys. I doubt they remembered them. I doubt they knew them at all. But the reason for the question is in the next verse. Where in the next verse, Gideon says, they were my brothers. Those guys you killed in Tabor. Uh, that was my brother's. Those were my uncles, the sons of my mother. The Lord lives, or as the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I wouldn't kill you now. There's a lesson that we have to understand in the Word of God, and that is, in a lot of ways, a spiritual law, and that's the law of sowing and reaping. What a man sows, that shall he also reap. What we sow, we reap. These two kings went around killing, slaughtering people, and ultimately that's what's going to happen to them. That's what's going to occur to them. So 
He said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. Now he's trying to humiliate these two kings. In Middle Eastern culture, you care who kills you. If you're killed by a woman, man, that, that is the worst of all. If there's anything worse than being killed by a woman, it's being killed by a child. So Gideon tells his firstborn, who's probably a young man at this time, teenager maybe, and he says, hey, just go kill those two guys. They're chained up. It's not like there's going to be a fight. But it's, it's hard as a child to do something like that. Gideon's trying to humiliate them. And, and as he tries to humiliate them, the word tells us uh, that, the, that his son was a youth and he couldn't do it. He was afraid because he was still so young. So the two kings used it as an opportunity to ridicule Gideon. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So here's what that means. You are just like your boy. Your boy is afraid to kill us. If you want us dead, you get up and do it. Now, the difference between Gideon and his boy was Gideon was more than happy to do it. So the Bible says that Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna. And then the beginning of the end. He arise, kills them, and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. Hmm. Now, when we think about Gideon and the victories that he has, and this journey of faith, and God's been with him to this point. God's been watching over him, and, and he's done okay. But now he starts to take the spoils. He sees the, on the kings, the necks of their camels. They carry sometimes 20, 30 pounds of gold, gold chains around their neck. I mean, that's a king's camel, right? Got to be fancy. And so he sees that gold and he takes it. I want you to compare Gideon. I want you to think about Gideon and his beginning in, in meekness. And his rise to conqueror. And then compare it with another one who didn't have such a tragic downturn at the end of his life. His name was Abraham. You know, Abraham had a battle with 300 men too. Ah, 318, pretty close. And he delivers Lot from the hands of the, of the, the, the five kings. A conglomeration of five kings who conquered Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? And when that happened... Abraham, did he take any of the gold? He didn't take any of it, did he? He didn't want none of that gold. He brought it back, but he did make sure that his men got some of the spoil. He made sure they got what they needed. But what's Gideon doing? He's getting for himself. The, you know, American dream says we got to watch out for number one, right? Nobody else is watching out for him, so I better take care of myself. That, God's not a part of the American dream. God has his own plans. He's got his own design. And his design is you care about the needs of others first before you think about yourself. So Gideon's starting to slip. We're going to see him go in the full decline in about two verses. He's starting to slip. He's starting to, to desire the gold. But think about it. When Abraham came back from that battle, what do we find him doing? Worshiping alongside a king Melchizedek. Giving a tenth of all to the Lord. Bringing a tithe to God. 
giving God the glory, honoring the Lord only, and not considering himself. Now, what's the Bible say about that? The Bible says that we should live a life of humility and lowliness and allow God to exalt us, not to exalt ourselves. right? We're to be humble. How did Jesus come? Was he born in a big old fancy palace? Did he ride a big old gnarly white horse? No. He came humble because that's the way God is. And that's what he wants of us. But Gideon, he's starting to like his press. You ever met people who like their press? Do you know the distance from hero to zero? One step. One day. Hero to zero. Well, let's see what happens. So the men of Israel said to Gideon, Man, Gideon, you're the best. Will you rule over us? Would you be our king? Both you and your sons and your grandsons, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Man, you're the best in the world. Gideon, will you run it? Will you be king? Now that's going to be a hard thing to turn down, isn't it? Hey, you be number one honcho. We'll ask you what to do. You tell us. He's got opportunity, man. He's got opportunity to, to step up and be in front. But Gideon still has a little bit of sense in him. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. That's the last good thing Gideon says. I won't rule over you. I'm not going to do this stuff, but neither will my children. My children won't rule over you. God needs to be your king. Listen, the Bible says in Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not seek first your own stability, your own financial security. Not seek first that, that fine home or that fine this or that. It says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Primary goals in life. And then God says what? And all these other things will be added. Financial security, the other things you're looking for, they're going to be found when you let those things go and make God the most important thing. In your life. So Gideon's kind of giving that advice. Kind of. But you know, words are cheap. Right? You ever hear someone say, action speaks louder than words? I heard that before. Well, look at Gideon's actions. The next thing he asked them. Then Gideon said to them, you know, I would like to make a request of you. That each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. Seems like a little thing, right? Uh, I just want to ask you a little thing. Would you give me all the earrings out of your plunder, whatever earrings you found? Just small. Small thing. And, the, and, and the, But they all had earrings. They wore a lot of earrings. Because they were Ishmaelites. And Ishmaelites wear golden earrings. Sounds like he's asking small. But really he's getting a lot. Just give me the earrings. So they answered and said, we'll give them to you gladly. And they spread out a garment and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. They're stoked to give it to him. Now the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's not counting the crescent ornament pendants and the purple robes that were on the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camel's neck. What he gets in the earrings is... Better than 50 pounds of gold. 
Even in those days, that's a fortune. He's got a lot of gold. He always had this struggle with thinking he wasn't very good and he come from a low family and a low place and he'd been poor all his life and now was his chance. But the Bible says riches are a snare because you start to hope in the riches. You start to long for the riches. You start to focus on the riches and you forget about God. So Gideon gets his riches, man. They pile on him all this gold. So Gideon took it and made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Oprah. Sounds like a good place to set up an idol, right? In Oprah. So he builds an ephod. What's an ephod? You remember the high priest? He wore this chest plate. And in that chest plate was 12 stones of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what the ephod is. He made his own out of solid gold. And he set it up in his city. He set it up for everyone to see, like it's on display in the city of Oprah. But look what happened. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. And it became a snare to Gideon into his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Gideon brought rest, but the people worshipped his ephod. They weren't worshipping God. They worshiped his ephod. He sold off all that stuff that he had for a little bit of gold and a little bit of riches. Compare that with Abraham that gave it all, made sure everybody else had it. He didn't take nothing. But what happened to Abraham? He walked with God his whole life. What happened to Gideon? He could have done so much more. But riches became a snare to him. The gold lured him. Now, don't be too hard on Gideon, because when we come to Hebrews chapter 11, guess who's there? Gideon. God calls him one of his faithful. But he didn't finish well. We, we often, I often say when I coach, it doesn't really matter how you start. It matters how you finish. We all started somewhere else, right? Most of us probably didn't start in church. We didn't start reading our Bibles. We didn't start all those places. But in our journey of life... We came to believe and trust in the truth of God's word and who God is. And now, here in the midst of our life, we're living it out and we've we're got our Bibles open and we're focused on him. It matters how we finish. If we keep God first, that's what Abraham did. And he didn't drift off into riches or something else. He just kept God first. And he thought of others first. And he didn't fall into a snare. Now... I'd love to leave you right here and tell you, well, that's it. Gideon didn't do so great, and he kind of faltered at the end, and he built this thing. But that's not the end of Gideon's story. How many of us know that our choices affect more than us? They affect more than just our generation. Agreed? Well, Gideon was a busy little guy, let me tell you. Because, Scripture goes on in verse 29, it says, Then, Yerub Baal... The son of Joash went and dwelt in his own house. That's another name for Gideon. And he had 70 sons that were his own offspring. For he had many wives. So not only did Gideon get focused on money, apparently he got focused on women. Now listen, 
The Bible won't lie about its subjects, but does the Bible say to multiply wives for yourself? No, the Bible says one wife is more than enough. Now, most people today don't do this. At least in this way. They may not multiply wives for themselves all at once. They may multiply them in series. But it's the same thing. When we multiply wives, we multiply children, we multiply heartache. Can he be a father to 70 kids? Can he provide the guidance that he needs for 70 kids? Did he? I don't know. I don't know, but he has 70 kids. 70 kids to follow what he's left for them to follow. And he had a concubine. Now a concubine, don't lose sight of it, a concubine is basically a wife without rights. Usually a slave that he or they will marry has no right to inheritance or any of those things. That's a concubine. And so he has a concubine who was in Shechem who bore him a son also whose name was Abimelech. Now here's a little insight into, into Gideon at the end of his life. Abimelech means my father the king. So Gideon said with his lips, I don't want to be your king. But what did he do with his actions? Give me your gold. Set me up. Here, worship my ephod. Everything he did acted like king. He even named his children, your father's the king. The children of a slave woman, Abimelech. Now, I'm sure he wasn't treated very well. What do you think? He's got 70 sons with regular wives and, and one son off here, not. I'm betting, you know, dear old dad wasn't looking out for him or wasn't taking care of him. Now, Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, and Oprah of the Abizarites. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead... The children of Israel again played harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. Soon as he was dead, they went back to the Baals. Now they wouldn't do it with Yerub Baal because that's how Gideon started, right? He tore down the altars of Baal. So they wouldn't worship Baal while he was there. But as soon as he died, they said Baal Berith. It means Baal is our covenant god. He's the God of the promise. Was Baal the pro- God of the promise? Was Baal the God who brought him out of Egypt? That's what they're calling him. So, 40 years of rest entered into a time of rebellion right away, right? Now listen. This is the last period of rest in the book of Judges. And we got a lot of the book of Judges left. This is the last period of rest. The rest of the heroes, the rest of the Judges are local One tribe will have a judge rise up and deliver that one tribe, but not nationwide like Gideon did. Gideon delivered them as a nation, but as soon as he was dead, they forgot him. And thus the children did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Yerub Baal, Gideon, in accordance with the good that he had done for them. Remember what I told you? How, How long a trip is it from hero to zero? One step. He died. They didn't care about his kids. They didn't care about the 70 sons. They didn't care about none of that. Now we're going to go through chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the longest chapter in Judges, but we're going to go quick. It's just 
telling you a story. And I want you to hear the story. This is a story of Abimelech. That off-cast son of Gideon. And the 70 sons of Gideon. It says, Then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem, to his mother's brothers, and spoke with them, and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Which is better for you, that the 70 sons of Gideon reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember, I am one of your own flesh and bone. Now he's talking to the people of Shechem. The Shechemites were a mixture of Jew and Canaanite. And you have here Abimelech, who's a mixture of Jew and Canaanite. Yeah, you see, he said these are the people of his mother, right? Not his father. His father was a Jew. His mother was a Canaanite. Gideon took a Canaanite slave woman and had a child with her. What fellowship does light have with darkness? The Bible says not to be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Why? Because it causes heartache. What, what do you have in common? You're of the light. They're of the darkness. You should have two people of the light. Or wait until they become part of the light. But, but don't be unequally yoked together. But they're unequally yoked together. And so Abimelech is the fruit of that. He goes to Shechem and he says, Hey, you don't want them 70 sons ruling over you. Now Gideon said, Who of his children would rule? He said, None of them, right? But he lived like a king, so his kids got the idea that they should be kings too. So Abimelech goes to Shechem and he starts a little rebellion. You don't want those 70 guys ruling over you. You just want me because I'm a mixture of Jew and Gentile. I'll watch out for you. Not like these other guys. I got your back. He goes to him and he begins to work out a deal. But Habakkuk 2.12 says, Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed and establishes a city in sin. Politicians are all the same. You need to know that. If you're looking for some great hope in politics, let me just get you on an equal playing field. I don't care what their name is, They are a liar. They are seeking to line their own pockets. They're just going to do it at your expense. They don't care. They'll tell you they want to turn around the country, but they don't care. That's the nature of politics. You make deals with whoever will listen. The only thing worse than the kind of politics we have is the politics of tyranny. The politics of tyranny come in waving a peace branch. Hey, I'm going to take care of you guys. But in the end, all he brings is bloodshed. We've seen that a lot in the world, haven't we? And that's the kind of leader Abimelech was. He's like, hey, vote for me. And later on, I'll come in and slaughter you all. Well, nobody's going to vote for you that way, right? So you got to lie. Oh, I'll take care of you guys. You guys take care of me. It's all good. So they had a campaign contribution party in verse 4. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth. So where did they take the money? 
from the temple of Baal of the covenant, Baal the covenant God, this false god that they were all worshiping, they took 70 shekels of silver and they gave him a campaign contribution. There you go, buddy. You go on and, and try to figure out how to become king. So what's he do with this campaign contribution? So Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men and they followed him. So he went out and hired himself a mercenary army. Abimelech, the outcast son of Gideon. Everything going pretty good for his family? See how it matters how you finish? So his family's kind of tail spinning, right? Circling the rain. They're going to finish it up here in a minute. It said then, uh, <clears throat> then he went to his father's house in Oprah and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbaal, on one stone. He went and slaughtered all his brothers. Now probably in all that, the probably the animosity comes from, I was the son of a slave woman, and I didn't have all the stuff they had. So I'm going to get in power, and I'm going to kill them all. And he kills 69 of the 70 sons of Gideon. He leaves one because that one wasn't there. Kills them all. Does it matter how you finish? Do those little things at the end of your life make a difference? Is there ever opportunity for us to sow wisdom into the lives of our children and not be so stupid? And think this is a good way to end my life. I'm just going to go spread my seed everywhere. I'm going to try to, to father a continent by myself. Seventy sons. Who knows how many daughters? They didn't count them. Seventy sons. So he slaughtered the seventy sons. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo. Now, when you read the Bible, understand, Beth means house of. Okay? So all the people of Beth Milo. Now, here's what Beth Milo means. It's the house of the fortress. Remember I told you guys the strong tower where everybody fled to? Now, if you're thinking of the economy of a city, who do you think lives closest to the strong tower? But rich people. The rich people are the closest to the strong tower so that their stuff is the hardest for everybody to steal. That's the most desirable land because you're closest to protection. So, from Shechem... The upper class, the, the wealthier people, they all follow him. And they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was at Shechem. They went to the terebinth tree that was at the pillar of Shechem. The pillar of Shechem is where Joshua inscribed the law. So there, covered by spider webs and garbage and trash, is this pillar upon which is inscribed the law of God. Some say the entire book of Deuteronomy was inscribed on that pillar. Next to that, they're making for themselves a king who's both Jew and Gentile when God's supposed to be their king. And they're setting him up. 
right there by the terebinth tree. Oh, the terebinth tree. It's also called the Oak of Mamre. The Oak of Mamre is where Abraham was met by God himself when God came and sat down with him beside the terebinth tree and told them about what was happening to Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. You guys remember the story? Same piece of ground. Same piece of ground where Joshua inscribed the law of God. The same piece of ground where Jacob, when he left Laban, remember when Jacob was with Laban, he had two wives? He had two wives because he was trying to marry the the, the pretty one, but they pulled the switcheroo. In those days, you used to wear a veil all the way through uh, the night of consummation. Now, because of Jacob... They have a point in the ceremony where the Jewish man gets to lift the veil and make sure it's the right woman. That's true. Actually in the ceremony. I did a Jewish wedding one time. The girl's wearing a veil. And in the middle of the wedding, I say, you may check your bride. And he could lift the veil and make sure it's the one it's supposed to be and then put the veil back down. I also had to sing seven Hebrew blessings. Scary. Scary, but it's a good time. Anyways, that's the same place where they make Abimelech king. So now Abimelech's a king. And when they told Jotham, this is the one son he couldn't find, he went and he stood on top of Mount Gerizim, and he lifted his voice and cried out, and he said to them, Oh, Mount Gerizim. So they're down there at the Oak of Memory, Mamre, that then he's on top of Mount Gerizim, and on the side of Mount Gerizim is a big triangle rock. Looks kind of like a pulpit. And the children of Israel would put... The, the, uh, the priests on Mount Gerizim and on Mount Ebal, and the people would stand in the valley below, and they would give the blessing and the curse. If you follow the Lord, blessing. If you rebel against the Lord, cursing. That would be shouted down from the mountain. That's the same place. So there they are, that same place. And Jotham, he stands up, and he's going to give them a parable. A parable. Listen to the parable. Listen to me, men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. The story of the the trees and their king. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over trees? Here's what he's saying in the parable. Being a king costs you something. You have to be willing to sacrifice. You have to be willing to sacrifice. It's not about you. It's about those you rule. You're not a king in order to get. You're a king in order to give. And that Jesus teaches that? Did he come to get? He came to give, right? That's what a true king is. So, then the trees came to the fig tree. Will you come reign over us? But the fig tree said, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? If you're going to be king, it's going to cost you something. Are you willing to make the sacrifice? fig tree said, No. Then the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over other trees? No, he wouldn't reign over them. Then all the trees said to the bramble bush, You come reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. You seen the shade of a bramble bush before? When's the last time on a hot day, you're sitting outside and you're thinking, oh, I'm so hot. I wish there was a little shade. And you looked at a bramble bush and said, 
shade and ran and dove under the bramble bush. Is a bramble bush known for shade? Is it known for providing that? What do we call that? We call that an empty promise. You ever heard those before? Boy, if you elect me, I'll balance the budget. Don't even listen to them. It's all lies. Now, having said that, just so you know, I always vote. I always vote because good men shed their blood to give me the right. So I always vote. I don't believe nothing any of them say. I count on them all breaking my heart and lying to me. But I vote Bible. I'm going to look at what that candidate is about. I'm going to tell you right now. If he is pro-abortion, I won't vote for him. I am not going to cast my vote and have God look at what I said and say, I cast my vote for the slaughter of the innocent. I won't do it, ever. I don't care if the guy I vote for doesn't have a shot at winning. I owe God, and I owe those guys who gave their life to give me the right. So I'll use the right, and I'll vote the Bible. And the guy that lines up the best it, if nobody lines up to it, I'll write somebody in. I don't mind. If nobody lines up, I got a name of the perfect king. I doubt that they want to elect him. But I will cast a vote for Jesus if I don't have nobody else. I didn't waste my vote. I didn't waste it. I probably am one, one of the few who, who made it matter. That's, a, that's the, what the bramble offers. Lies. If you make me king, you can come rest in my shade. I'm not sitting in a bramble bush for nothing. For nothing, ever. It's a lie. They don't have no shade. But if you don't, then let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Yeah. Now, therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity, this is, again, Jotham talking, in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you out of the hand of Midian, but you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons at one stone. And you made Abimelech, the son of a female servant, king over the men of Shechem, because he's your brother. If then you acted in truth and sincerity with Yerubal and with the house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. You guys deserve each other. But if not, if what you're doing is wrong, he's going to prophesy. Let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. If you guys are wrong, you're going to kill each other. If you're right, rejoice. If you're wrong, you're going to kill each other. And Jotham ran away and fled to Be'er and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech his brother. Now, after Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, now I'm figuring at the end of three years, they're thinking, nothing happened. That crazy coot up there saying all this stuff. Obviously, we were right, because we were here three years later. Things are going fine. Things are great, man. Couldn't be happier. Abimelech's been a good king. Things are going great. 
God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. He came into power through deception. What a man sows. How's it go? That shall he also reap. He got power through deception. After three years, deception is going to strip him of his power. It says that, that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might be settled, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who aided in the killing of the brother. So God moves not always as fast as we would like him to move in terms of vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He waited three years. What did they have opportunity for in those three years? They got opportunity for repentance, right? Isn't that when you and I threw up our hands to God and said, forgive me? I'm a sinner, God. I'm no better than these guys. Forgive me. And that was the attitude that, that he gave opportunity for. Well, it says, The men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. So Abimelech is receiving tribute, and the men of Shechem are stealing it. You guys with me? So the men of Shechem who made him a king, they're stealing the tribute of Abimelech. Now Gael, the son of Ebed, came to his brothers and went over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. Now, Gael is a, is a guy, he's kind of popular in Shechem, right? Does this sound familiar? A guy coming in Shechem, kind of popular, trying to work a deal? Isn't that how Abimelech got in? Huh, funny how that works. So they went into the fields, and they gathered the grapes from the vineyard, and they trod them, and they made merry, and they went to their houses and, uh, of their God, and they ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. So now they're all getting drunk, having this little party, talking about what a loser Abimelech is. Then Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Gideon? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Why should we serve him? Now comes a guy who's a full-blooded Canaanite. And he says, Why do we got a half-breed ruling over us? I'm I'm full-blooded loser he's only half a loser if you want somebody ruling over you you want a full blood so he's calling calling him out and and cursing against his jewish heritage and then he says if only this people were under my authority now this is got all talking if only they were under my authority then i would remove abimelech so he said to abimelech and all his boasting remember they're all drinking right people liquid courage you say anything then he said, oh, Abimelech should increase his army and come on out. I'll take him. You ever heard talk like that? I heard a lot of talk like that back in the drinking days. Oh, he's nothing. Hmm. What are the odds that the own words of his mouth will come in judgment to him? Could be. Could be. So Zebul, the city manager, heard it. The words of Gael, the son of Ebed. And his anger was aroused. Now the city manager who works for Abimelech heard Gael, and he's going to tell Abimelech what he said. So he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly and said, Take note, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are fortifying the city against you. Now, therefore, get up by night, you and all the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. 
And it will be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you will rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as you find opportunity. Abimelech, time for you to come whoop him. He said he could take you. I've heard this talk before. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. And when Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood at the entrance of the city gate, Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. So all of a sudden, Gaal looks outside, and he remember he said, Abimelech should bring his army, I'll take him. And he looks out, and there's Abimelech and his army. I wonder what that felt like. Hmm, doesn't sound like a good day. So when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said, Nah, you're just seeing shadows. They're not really men. Remember, Zebul's trying to get him to go out there. Oh, he don't have as many as you think. You could take them. You could take them. Go ahead. So Gael spoke again and said, uh, See, people are coming down from the center of the land, and another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. The diviner's terebinth tree? Where did he get that name? From the day God came down and sat down and spoke with Abraham at that tree? Hmm, could be. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now? You said if Abimelech comes, you take him. There is Abimelech. Go get him. That's what's going on. Are not these the people that you despise? Go out if you will and fight against them. Put your money where your mouth is. So Gaal went out leading the men of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and he fled from him. And many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt at Arumah. And Zebul drove out Gaal and his brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field. And they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city. He rose against and attacked them. And Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the center of the city gate. And the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. What did Jotham say? Fire come out of Abimelech and devour Shechem. And fire from Shechem and Beth Milo come out and devour. See, they're fighting against each other now. And Abimelech just slaughtered all the people of the city. So, when all the men, now when all the men of that tower of Shechem heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Bereth. And it was told Abimelech that all the men were in the tower of Shechem. So he gathered them together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, and he said to the people who were with him, And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a a bough from the trees and laid it on his shoulder. And he told the people who were with him, What you've seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bough and followed Abimelech and put them against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire. So that all the people in the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. May fire come out of Abimelech and devour the people of Shechem. Sound familiar? Then Abimelech went to Thisbez, or uh, Thebez, and he camped against Thebez and took it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women of the city were there. They fled there and shut themselves up. And they went to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it. 
And he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman dropped a millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. In his last dying words, he called quickly to the young men, his armor bearer, and said, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say a woman killed me. So the young man thrust him through, and he died. The sons of Gideon. That's the heritage he left. How you finish matters. Every day is an opportunity to do it right, right? Most of us have done it wrong several days in a row. But God's mercy is new every morning, isn't it? Every morning we have an opportunity to make it right. Every morning we have an opportunity to, to leave a better life for our kids than the one we found. We got an opportunity to teach them, right? Walk with them in the way. We have a lot easier, don't we? We don't have 70, do we? I hope nobody here has 70. So we have an opportunity to do, to do what God's calling us to do, to, to, to make it count. To take a life where we're afraid, like Gideon was. Afraid. It's okay to be afraid. God strengthened him and made him a conqueror. Made him a hero. Every one of us in this room can be that. But when you're the hero, do it like Abraham did it. Keep the main thing, God. Don't believe your own press. Help your children to know what it is to walk with the Lord. Spend the time sowing that seed of ministry. That one really counts for something. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time. We could come before you. We thank you for an opportunity, God, just to study your word tonight, God, to learn a little bit about Gideon and, and how his life went, God, and, and hopefully to, to realize that Scripture is given to us for our admonition upon whom the end of the age has come, that we might learn from their mistakes. Help us learn from the mistakes Gideon made. Ah, God, in your eyes, he's still a, a faithful. That's what you remember, our victory. I, I thank you for that, God, that that's your focus. But we have opportunity right now to remember the pitfalls and say, I don't want to fall in that pit. I want to finish my race. I want to finish well. God, we ask that you would be with us in this place and help us to learn this lesson well. And God, for each of us, that we would keep our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. That we would give all glory and praise to him. That we would seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and not worry about all the other things, for they will be added unto us. So, Lord, we pray that you would do an amazing work in our lives as we seek to follow you and be men and women, heroes at your disposal, willing to submit ourselves to your power to do as you see fit in our life. And we give you all the praise and all the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with a word of worship. We invite you to hang out and worship with us. And then we'll hang out in the foyer. I think there's a bunch of cakes out there because I saw people with blue lips running around. They're frosting and 
We'll have a neat time, neat time of fellowship in the foyer. God bless you guys. And go in peace. You slinging bass, brother? Now we got Fritz moving around.
Thank you guys. Have a great week.